Many years ago, a friend gave me the name and the nickname for reasons I don't really even remember, uh, D-Train. And now after Becky's time this morning, I guess it switches to Detour. <laughs> I invite you to come with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the last time I was preached, I was here in these verses later in the chapter when Paul is assuring us of God's unbreakable love to us and if he gave us all things in Christ, if he didn't spare his own son, how would he not freely with him give us all things? But this morning I wanted to come back to an earlier section and to focus on a key idea that he shares here and that he shares from time to time in his letters, which he clearly views as important if we're going to stay strong in trusting in God and therefore following God. It picks up in verse 17. He's talking about because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit teaches us to cry, Abba, Father. That's actually back in verse uh, 15. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if, we're ch if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then he makes a connection that again and again the New Testament makes. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so he introduces, he reminds us of the reality of suffering, sufferings. And that leads to this kind of thematic statement that he makes in verse 18. When he says, I consider that our present sufferings, or more literally, the sufferings of the present time, the present age that we're in, before the coming age, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us or to us, or it's hard to know exactly how to translate that. One par uh, translation paraphrases the glory that's in store for us. Paul says here and in other places, compared to what's ahead, compared to the glory that's in store for us, the sufferings of this present era, this present time of life that we lived in, Peter calls it a little while, but he means our lifetime in this fallen era, in this fallen world. Paul is just saying there's just no comparison. Paul thinks that our believing that that is really true is going to be essential if we're going to keep trusting in God and knowing his peace. Or as he puts it in another passage, so that we don't lose heart. Today, I've got so much I want to say in the message. A lot of what I'm going to do is assign you stuff to think through in further ways throughout this Lord's Day or this week. And one of the things is, what does it mean 
and what happens when a person, a professing Christian, loses heart. You still go through the motions, you still sort of officially believe what you've professed to believe, but the sufferings of whatever kind they might have been have hit hard enough, long enough, inexplicably enough, that the reality is, almost unaware that it's happening sometimes, we just lose heart. We don't know how to get our footing again. We don't know how to get our perspective again so that we can meaningfully face and address the situations, the sufferings that we are facing. One writer says these sufferings of the present time aren't only those trials that are endured directly because of the commitment to Christ, that is persecution, that's a real focus of Paul's concern, but that they also encompass the whole spectrum of suffering, including such things as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. In fact, all the evils that Paul will later describe at the end of the chapter. These are the sufferings, these are the experiences that can make the believer just lose heart. And Paul says one of the crucial things for counteracting that to happen is that we have such an awareness of the glory that's to come that we have ideas about it, strong beliefs about it, shaped by Scripture, that get us to the place where it's not that the sufferings are less, but our calculation about the glory that's ahead gets stronger and bigger and heavier and weightier so that we more and more approach the perspective that Paul himself had. The sufferings aren't worth even comparing to the glory that's ahead. Are we very good at thinking much about the glory? Are we very good at hoping? Now all of this wouldn't ring very true at all if Paul had had an easy life himself, for him to weigh in on suffering and not worth comparing. But Paul had not had an easy life himself. Just to remember of his faith story regarding suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, exposed to death again and again. Three times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's miserable. That's horrible. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the mood, move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in dangers from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? This is the man who said, I consider, 
I reckon, and the, the word there means a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of what the gospel promises. Sometimes we have to preach the word of God to ourselves and to our souls. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And we do it not just out of wishful thinking that comes from nothing. We do it because we set our minds and hearts on realities. The realities of God, his character, his attributes, his ways, and his works, climaxing in the cross and in the empty tomb. I reckon, Paul says, I consider now, staring, yes, I know about the sufferings, but gazing at the prospect of the glory that's in store. That's the basis for how he is thinking and reasoning. And Paul then kind of goes cosmic in his thinking about these things in the next few verses. For he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, that kind of thinking, that kind of really big, broad theological thinking, often doesn't come very naturally to us. We have to sometimes go deep into God's word and it's wor the word about his deep purposes. And so Paul goes wide-angle lens and says that the creation itself is looking forward to that glory that believers will experience. In these verses, Paul is saying that both creation and Christians suffer in the, presence, in the present from a sense of incompleteness and frustration and futility that leads them to yearn for this culminating climactic transformation when God is going to make everything new and put everything right the way it's supposed to be again. That the creation is waiting for that. They're waiting for God to put things right. One commentator says, Believers are already sons of God in this life, but their sonship is veiled and their true identity is impenetrable except to faith. It doesn't look like we're the king's kids a lot of the times. It doesn't look like we're his dearly loved and favored children a lot of the times. It doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. So it takes the eye of faith, helped by the Holy Spirit who testifies to our spirit, to really believe. Believers are already sons of God in this life, but it takes faith to keep believing that that's true. Even they themselves have to believe in their sonship against the clamorous evidence of much in their circumstances and condition, which seems to be altogether inconsistent with the reality of being God's dearly loved child. The revelation of the sons of God that Paul's talking about will be the manifestation beyond all possibility of doubt or contradiction of that sonship, concerning which, until that time, it must be said in the language of the poet, concealed at yet this honor lies by this dark world unknown. For the creation itself, Paul says, was subjected to frustration, to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. 
And it seems there that Paul is talking about the curse. Once Adam sinned, there was a curse now on the creation. And it became subjected to frustration and futility. It couldn't become what it was supposed to be. And it's personalized, but that's done different times throughout the Old Testament. Now, the creation is in bondage to decay and corruption. It shows up in everything from cancer to catastrophes. In a world where there is disease, natural disaster, and death. All around us, things just seem to be falling apart. And for even seemingly the healthiest among us, we are in fact very much mortal, and the last enemy stalks us all. Even more, so long as the sons and daughters of Adam, the heads of the creation, refuse to lead the way and do their part, all the rest of the creation is frustrated and thwarted in fulfilling its own purpose of bringing glory to the Creator. But even in the midst of this divinely deserved judgment, there would still be hope, Paul says. In hope, verse 20. The first promise of the gospel, the good news, that there would be a Redeemer who would reverse what the curse had done is all the way back in Genesis 3 also. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. The battle's on between us and between your offspring, your seed, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. At the end of Romans, in Romans 16, 20, Paul refers to that. Satan will soon be crushed under your feet. There is now this hope that's planted in the midst of a world that seems so much marked by frustration and futility. It's the same word that's used concerning Ecclesiastes and the assessments of Ecclesi vanity, meaninglessness. But it is now injected with this hope that runs as a current throughout the Old Testament, throughout the life of the people of Abraham, throughout the life of the nation of Israel, with this promise, this accumulating promise that there is going to be a Savior King. And he's going to put things right again. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and corruption. And brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. That's what Paul says is ahead. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Right up to the present time. Right up till now. Paul uses this vivid metaphor of groaning as in the pains of childbirth to both to describe the reality and intensity of the decay of a cursed creation, but also to remind us what comes after the travail of the labor pains. There is birth. There is a new birth and a reason for rejoicing. 
The Lord Jesus himself had spoken of the regeneration of all things. So Paul says, this world that we inhabit, subject to futility and frustration, but even the creation knows, even the creation knows that it's not always going to be this way. Even the creation is looking forward and groaning with anticipation. But then he pivots his focus from the situation of the creation to the situation of Christians. Not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. And the one thing that is most characterizing the incomplete part of our sonship is we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. There's a lot about groaning in this passage. Sighing. There's a lot about groaning, really, in Romans and in the New Testament. Certainly the Psalms. And we again, we want to be real as the people of God. And we want when people engage with us to know that as Christians, we're not always grinning. Sometimes we're groaning sincerely. Sometimes the weight of this world and its troubles and its trials and broken relationships, whatever it might be, we're groaning. And so he says, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that's glorious. When we were truly saved, when we were truly born again, every believer, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside. And that has to manifest itself emotionally in some way or another. Now, some people more emotional than others, some people more experiential than others, but that can't happen and nothing occur inside. And so there's this realization, there's this witness from the Spirit, I'm God's child now because I've trusted in Christ. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we have an appetite for the Word of God and the things of God. The worship of God really matters to us now. And we find joy in our salvation, and we are amazed by grace, and we are humbled by our forgiveness. It's just sort of unmistakable. The Holy Spirit really has come into my heart, come into my life. But as so many other aspects of our salvation, it's already, but not yet. There is again an incompleteness. The metaphor of fruit, first fruits is, it's the beginning that guarantees the full harvest, but you don't have the full harvest yet. We live groaning and frustrated much of the time because we've got a taste, but we don't have the whole feast. And so even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. I guess one of the things that I want to say this morning is, don't be surprised by, and don't let others and their view of a victorious Christian life make you feel guilty for the times when you groan inwardly. Groan. You know, 
there's no way to happify groaning. You know, I groan joyfully. You know, we always want to just kind of, oh, we're not comfortable with lament. We're not comfortable with sadness. We're not, so yeah, I groan, but it's a good kind of groan. No, we groan inwardly. Just leave it at that. It's not the whole story ever. Paul can talk about, and I've said it before, but Paul can talk about in 2 Corinthians 16, sorrowing yet always rejoicing. And if that makes you think personality disorder, you haven't understood the theology, the realistic theology of the Bible. Because it matches our fallen human experience. We're not in glory yet. But we're headed there. So sometimes simultaneously, not sequentially. He doesn't say that in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't say sometimes we sorrow and then we rejoice and then we sorrow again and then we rejoice. He says sorrowing yet always rejoicing simultaneously. That's the reality. We are waiting eagerly. The word means, and J.B. Phillips paraphrased, kind of standing on tiptoe, you know, just craning to see when it's going to arrive. We're awaiting eagerly our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The New Testament teaches again that there's an incompleteness to our salvation so long as our bodies are not yet redeemed. And Paul says they're not yet redeemed. What was read in the scripture reading, flesh and blood isn't adapted, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. And in that same chapter, the apostle says that the new resurrection body of the fully redeemed believer, resurrected, is a spiritual body. And spiritual there means capital S, spirit, then the suffix. A body conditioned and adapted by the Holy Spirit for the eschatological, the end time kingdom of God. That hasn't happened yet. Or as Paul writes to the Philippians, we're waiting for his return when he will transform the body of our humiliation, of our humble state in this fallen world into conformity with the body of his glory. Did Jesus have a new kind of body after his resurrection? It was still Jesus and there were still the scars, but it was a different kind of body. It was a glorified body. It was a body adapted for kingdom experience. You don't have that yet and neither do I. And because we don't, there are lots of reasons to groan. We are vulnerable to decay. <laughs> Outwardly, Paul says candidly, we're wasting away. I've got really some friends really, really, really into fitness in a way that puts me to shame. Probably a shame that leads to the bitterness that reminds me of the theological truth. I know you're getting, you seem to be getting a lot stronger, but you need to know outwardly you are wasting away. 
that's really happening to every one of us. And so there's a groaning. Sometimes it's very literal, isn't it? Sometimes that's not, you know, so don't spiritualize it away. You've got a body subject to decay and corruption. There's a groaning that goes with that. But there's something more significant still, and it's hard to fully explain and describe, but our bodies, while the physical isn't evil, but you read Romans 6 and you read Romans 7, and somehow our physical bodies and the members of our bodies bear the marks of our past addiction to sinning and unbelief and idolatry. Who will deliver us from this body of death, Paul asks. Our redemption isn't complete yet. We are waiting for it to happen. Every person plagued by illness, every person who got the bad diagnosis this past week, every person struggling with that besetting sin that they truly wish was no longer part of their life and existence, they're groaning because they're still waiting for their full-fledged adoption, the redemption of this body. And Paul says, in this hope, we were saved. We weren't saved by that hope, but when we were saved, that, was part, that hope was part of the deal. How are you when it comes to hoping? The Bible and Christian theology have always taught us that the three cardinal virtues are faith, hope, and love. And in my experience, we think a lot about faith and we think a lot about love, however we do it enacting them, but I don't think we think nearly as much about hope and hoping. But this passage is an intense lesson on why it matters so much that we learn to hope. Because if we don't, we'll probably lose heart. We'll lose our joy. We'll lose our sense of the peace of God that passes understanding. We'll lose our deepest motivations to keep worshiping. We'll lose our gratitude if we, keep, if we lose our ability to hope. First, Paul gives a nuts and bolts reminder of what hoping isn't. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already see? Some theologians, name rhymes with boasting, some theologians would have you think, you get it all now. Well, if you already get it, you already see it, there's no place for hoping in your Christianity. We don't go as far as some, but I'm positive. I know from my own heart and I know from my own mind and thinking that we have lived with this scaled down prosperity gospel light that basically says again, if I'm sort of minding my Christian P's and Q's and doing about what I'm supposed to do, I might face trouble, but it won't last very long and it won't go very deep. Bible the New Testament never says that. And Paul's own experience, Paul's own theology here points exactly in the opposite direction. But if we hope for what we do not yet see, then we'll wait expectantly for it patiently, with patient fortitude. 
Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4. Though outwardly we are wasting away, verse 16, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The believer who's coming to believe these things more and more deeply and getting a firmer and firmer grasp on the prospect of glory, even in the midst of the outward decaying, experiences the miracle of the inward renewing. For our light and momentary troubles, and again, only an apostle who's been through what he's been through could make that kind of claim credibly, or a Johnny Erickson Tata, or a Corey Tinboom, or some of you in this room. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all again, incomparably better and greater. This is always dangerous when I do an illustration on the fly, but I'm going to try it. First, let me say this is another one of those areas that I'm actually terrible at in my own experience. So I'm very much preaching to myself throughout this message. But this week, very super minor, shrunken down. It's only a story and illustration, so to factor that in, I was eating some pretzels, and all of a sudden, there was a weird sensation and a crunch. And I thought, well, that was a weird pretzel. And I didn't think anything about it. Went a little bit later, tongue happened to go across the tooth, and I thought, that doesn't feel right. And I realized that what I felt and what I chewed a little bit wasn't pretzel, but it was uh, enamel. (laughs) It was tooth. And so I called my dentist, and he was very gracious, and he said, uh, come in and see me tomorrow. Part of it was, well, I said, well, I'm preaching this Sunday and I'd rather not have a, you know, a dental emergency mid-sermon or something like that. So he came in and, you know, I'm laying in the chair and all this, and again, so minor. And uh, well, by the way, the dentist's mom is, uh, my dentist's mom is visiting today. But anyway, <laughs> he came in. It was oh so very minor and he was so gracious. It was simple. He was going to fix it. But because I was thinking along the lines of this kind of message, I was, you know, it is a weird experience. I don't care what advances we've made in modern medicine. To have something in your mouth, it's just a drill. There is no other, and it sounds like a drill, and it feels like a drill. And they can make the stuff whatever flavor they want to make it. But I've still got a drill inside my head. And it, again, it's, and he, he's one who also, he, he always narrates what's about to happen. He'll say, now, this will feel like kind of a knocking feeling, and, and it did. And, you know, you're there, and, you know, first the, and I'm thinking, you know, why am I going through this? This is painful and unpleasant. I'm getting up out of the chair. Forget about it. I don't want it. Why do you ever stay in the chair? Why do you ever go for the checkup in the first place? Because the dental health <laughs> that's out there, if you do, is worth it. And it would be much, much worse if you don't endure the little bit of pain now. I told you it was a petty, small illustration. <laughs> but the Bible is saying, and I don't know how, 
And especially sometime when I'm looking into the face of the other person's suffering. I don't know how, but it's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. And we just trust that that's true. We can't spot it. It'd be different if it's like, oh, I see why this hardship, because next Wednesday it's going to bring this blessing. That'd be walking by sight again, not by faith. But we keep trusting that there is going to be this eternal weight of glory because of what God in his fatherly, inscrutable, often, wisdom permits that will make you say and make me say in glory it was worth it all. It was best. God was acting most wisely. None of this means that our lives will be easy even when we think along these lines. In the midst of this fallen, badly broken, corrupted, decaying world, faithful believers will often be called upon to experience hard things, and to do hard things. We've been going through the book of Acts in our New Horizons adult Bible community, and you see the realism there, even in their ministry. Luke reports that Paul and Barnabas, after leading many to Christ, eventually circled back to disciple them some. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And that strengthening and encouragement included telling them this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Many hardships. Or in the deep, wise words of the scriptural song, Amazing Grace, the same grace that saves us also leads us through many dangers, toils, and snares. Wednesday night, we were in Isaiah chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, not if, when. When you go through the flames, not if, but when, I will be with you. I have a lot more to say. Don't have time to say it. So I'll say this. What are the keys to continuing to hope and hoping like Paul describes here in Romans chapter 8, where we wait not passively, but with patient fortitude? Consider these two passages from Romans 15. Verse 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul prayed for himself and others that they would have hope. I pray that for you. Please pray that for me. That in the midst of what we experience, we have the power, the ability God-given to keep on hoping, waiting expectantly. Not like I hope, but it's, hap- it's going to happen, so I'm expecting it, I'm anticipating it. I'm keeping hoping and overflow with hope. Secondly, 
what he says in verse 4. Everything that was written in the past, and he was talking about the Old Testament revelation, and now we have a New Testament too, was written to teach us so that through, through, through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So, here are some words written down in the scriptures that can fuel our hope. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, what the groaning believers have been waiting for. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea because sea is the symbol of the chaos and the frustration and the futility. Well, it's gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, that's the king talking, look, God's dwelling place is now among men and he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There won't be any more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they'll reign forever and ever. And he who was on the throne said, and this is what we're hoping for. I am making everything new. And then he said, write all this down. For these words are faithful and true, and they give us hope so we don't lose heart. Amen.